welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about the Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in Placentia, California at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Drowsy morning. Look at you. You look drowsy. Right? Right? Anybody? Okay. What's up, Niner? You're proving my, the- my theorem right now that you're very drowsy. Now, a couple of thoughts. Number one, if you're new to w- with us, welcome. It's very drowsy this morning. Number two, um, I root for a college football team that lost uh, last night, and, um, and now I know what it feels like. It's been a long time, and so this is, uh, I, get, I get now why many of you are miserable. Uh, so that's okay. Um, we, welcome to Vox. We're thrilled you're here. Uh, we are huge fans of, uh, of granting people permission to kind of be wherever they're at. We realize we're all in process. And so well, one of the ways that we kind of allow people to um, be wherever they are is uh, we tell stories. Um, we allow people to ask great questions. Um, so we're going to start a service with some Q&A from last week's teaching. That was, I mean, the, Q, the questions are getting better and better and better. Not that they were ever bad, but holy cow, I don't know how you do justice to some of these. And then uh, Wade's going to share his story. We're going to do some singing. We'll do some teaching. We'll do a little uh, Lord's Supper, a little more singing, and boom, you got the rest of your day. What do you think about that? It's nine o'clock. Some of you need a nap. Now, so text questions from last week. Holy cow, these were so good. I'm a Jewish believer. I personally know, and I think um, we, we need to add, I personally know uh, other Jews who accept God and are very connected to him. The Jews I'm referring to are usually not orthodox, and they seem to love God and their neighbors from the bottom of their hearts. Could it be that they truly have a personal relationship with God, although they do not recognize Jesus as his son? After all, God is God, not Jesus. What a great question. So let's explore the mysteries of the Trinity in 30 seconds, shall we? Um, so, so first of all, we would say, well, can God reveal himself through nature, through creation, through uh, the Old Testament? Well, of course he can. And, and, you know, there was even a category of people in, uh, in Jesus' day who were non-Jewish folks who loved and worshipped the God of Israel. They were called God-fearers. And they were, they were not... They were not covenant people, but they loved uh, and, and, uh, and worshipped the God of Israel. So, so is it possible, I'm very sympathetic to the question, is it possible for people to have a devotion to the God that they know? Well, of course it is. The, the one hiccup is when Jesus marches around saying things like, no one can know the Son, or no one can know the Father except through the Son. And if you know the Father, you know the Son, and if you know the Son, you know the Father, and, and you get into this mysterious trinity where, yes, there is one God, but that God reveals God's self uh, as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so there's a oneness of essence, of Godhood, but there's a threeness of person. And how that cashes out uh, in this instance, I don't know. I'm not, I, I don't judge other people's hearts or devotion. There just is this little hiccup where Jesus seems to begin to make exclusive claims about his definitive revelation of the Father. I don't know where to put those. Is it possible? I know, I know God does all kinds of incredible things 
uh, outside of Christian, explicitly Christian context. So am I open to it? Sure. Uh, I don't know what to do with those kind of verses. That, that would be the one hiccup for me. Next. A large part of me still says, uh, yeah, but human sacrifice? So we looked at Abraham and Isaac last week. It's hard to map Abraham Isaac's story to the greatest expression of love. I can visualize one laying down her life for a friend as perhaps the greatest expression of love, right? Jesus refers to that. But in that case, the agency doing the killing is evil. Next. How is it justice slash love to let one endure punishment for another? Is redemption through sacrifice the real essence of the Christian story, or is it just how an ancient sacrificial culture understood the death of Jesus? See? Do you see? These are phenomenal questions. Holy cow. Uh, and the answer is a bit of both. God always, God is a missionary God. And what that means is that God reveals God's self in human history using images, pictures, metaphors that are relevant to that culture. So the, a lot of the Old Testament is framed around an ancient way of doing treaties. The, ways that, the way that kings would reveal, excuse me, the way that kings would make treaties with vassal nations, a lot of the Old Testament law is framed in that way. The Ten Commandments are framed as something called a ketubah, which was a Jewish wedding contract where God actually marries his people Israel. He divorces them later in the story and then remarries them. I mean, it's just this fascinating deal. But all of those are instances where God is using the pictures that are meaningful in that world to communicate his character and nature. That's why the point of the story wasn't child sacrifice at all. That's what the other gods were like. The point of the story was that in the way that God loves, God always provides what God demands. So the story is revealing what kind of God we're dealing with. It's not that, that human sacrifice is the point. It's that, no, no, the highest nature of God's kind of love is that it's self-giving love. God will always provide what God is demanding from people. That's, that's what the story is getting at. That's the beautiful picture that we see in that story. Next. Why does God change people's names uh, in the Bible? Is he giving them a new identity? Yes. Is it a cultural thing? Yes. Great, great job. Are you going to be doing baptisms? Absolutely. We've got a pool over there. We're just waiting for it to get cold so that you've got to want it. You've got to want it. Is it important to be, oh, go back. Is it important to be baptized? Absolutely it is. This is the pledge of allegiance to King Jesus. This, uh, baptism doesn't save us, but baptism is it's the, the same reason a marriage ceremony is important. You could be married by just you know, going to a courthouse, filling out some paperwork. Sure, absolutely. But there's also something significant about standing in front of witnesses and declaring publicly your intention to form a covenant. And so, in the same way, baptism isn't necessary uh, to enter into the kingdom, but it is absolutely a significant and hugely important outgrowth of that. Next, God tested Abraham. That was the whole story last week. Does he continue to test us today to determine our worthiness? Now, what's, what's, what's the one word that doesn't apply in that second sentence? Worthiness. The big point is that when test, that when God, it says the Bible, in the Bible that God tested people, it, it's not a pass-fail thing to determine worthiness. Never, not once ever. The Hebrew concept 
is that God arranges circumstances to reveal publicly what's already internally in the person. So Abraham was declared to be a man of great faith. The test reveals how great his faith turns out to be. Worthiness has nothing to do with it. And, and in, in the Jesus movement, worthiness isn't, that's not even a word that ever applies. So no, God never tests you to determine your worthiness, ever. And, and then the second part of the question is, is that why some of us as believers suffer so profoundly? No. God does not cause your suffering. Human sin, a fallen world, and a real um, adversary are all conspiring at work to cause the suffering of people. God can use that. God can redeem that. God can use it to refine, of course. But God is not the author of it. it the Bible is so clear about that. Next. Oh, you guys are ridiculous. We were thinking, you know, maybe texting it in will keep the question short. Maybe we should tweet them. The realization that Isaac is a small boy may just be something I presumed. Radically, it radically changes the account of Abraham and his faith. Because I was arguing that Isaac was an adult. Shifting it to include the faith of Isaac to sacrifice himself. That this challenges me to reflect on my faith and willing obedience to difficult circumstances. I love that. What is the compelling evidence that would suggest Isaac is being older and making such a choice to follow God in this way? Great question. Look at this. We're not just taking the teacher's word for it. What? We're actually thinking and doubting and questioning. What? Didn't that happen? What? All right, now, uh, just take my word for it. Yes, he's an adult. Thank you. Let's close the prayer. No, um... Why do we know Isaac was an adult? Well, first, the end of chapter 21, it says Abraham stayed uh, with the Philistines for a long time. Chapter 22 begins, after some time, God tested Abraham. Um, so you have unspecified dates there that, that seem to allow for significant pieces of time to have gone by. Secondly, Abraham, excuse me, Isaac is described as a boy in the English word, but the Hebrew word means anywhere from um, uh, a young man to a young adult. Uh, that doesn't clarify it. What I mean is um, a 13-year-old all the way up to 30 is the idea. And, and Isaac is big enough to carry the wood of his own sacrifice. How much wood do you need to burn a person, right? Because the, the command that Abraham thought he received, whether he did or not is a different story, was to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering, so how much wood are you carrying? You're carrying a significant, significant amount of wood up a hill. Not only that, the almost universal Jewish commentary on this is that Isaac was in his 30s. Um, and so for all of those reasons, and the fact that there's nothing in there that says he was a small kid. Just that word boy, and the word boy doesn't mean uh, tiny like a toddler. It means... Young man to young adult all the way. And so that, that's the reason. Now, sometimes the questions are the answers to these things. Raise more questions. Hallelujah for that. Um, you can text more, and we're not running out of uh, any material. Now, I want, you to inter I, I want to introduce you. So that, that's one of the ways that we just try to normalize. It's safe to be here. No matter where you are, who you are, it's safe to have questions, to, to doubt, to struggle. 
Another way we try to do that is by telling stories. So Wade, come on out. This is our friend Wade. Wade helped us start this church. And so say hello to Wade. Good morning. So anytime you get a, a handsome man in a black shirt and cargo shorts, he's hired. All right, just end of, end of story. So Wade, share a little bit uh, of your story with us. Good morning. You all have heard of the uh, State of the Union address. This is kind of a State of the Wade address. <laughs> and if it was about your marriage, it would be a State of the Union address. Ah! That's later. Okay. My name's Wade, and I'm not on very good terms with Jesus. What? Just wait. And you're at church? I know. Yeah, hold on. Put that close. Yeah, right there. Given my history, this shouldn't be so. I was born into and grew up in the church. Loved the flannel graph stories. Knew all the kids' songs. Knew all the Sunday school answers. Even graduated from a Christian college. I've been very active in the church, but despite all that, I'm just not close to Jesus. Now, I find a a healthy dose of satisfaction from serving in the church, and I recommend it to everyone. It's a great way to get plugged in. And I have never felt more alive than on missions trips. If you get the chance, go. I've played a role in just about every area of church life, and some of those even included tights and makeup. So you were preaching? Yes. But despite all of this work and effort, it's brought me no closer to him. If anything, it's led to disappointment. Ooh! Disappointment with God on some levels. Disappointment with the church on a lot of levels. But after thinking on this for a while, it's also led to disappointment with me. Mm. For a long time, my attitude was, I'm doing all this for you, church, for you, God, and this is what I get in return? Now, my disappointment with church comes from the ugly, disgusting church politics and hypocrisy that I've witnessed. No. And taken part in. Oh. Some by choice and some by manipulation. Mm. I've been a part of three strong churches that essentially deteriorated over power struggles between the pastor, the elders, and the church staff. And the pastor always loses. Okay, forget it. I was going to make a joke. (laughs) It's amazing how, from on stage, it's presented as the unified body of Christ, but as soon as the service is over, the gossip, lies, and manipulation run rampant. Everyone is forced to pick a side and suffer the consequences. I still carry quite a bit of anger and hurt that goes along with that disappointment. My disappointment with God comes from, to me, his silence. Now, that's not necessarily a a reflection of God, but more of my selfish attitude and me. I don't get why God is silent to all the crap that goes on behind the scenes in his church. Mm. Or why he says no to simple, reasonable prayer requests. After all, the Bible says... Ask and you you shall receive, right? And I was always told if you tie Jesus' name to it, it's a lock. You're going to get it. Hmm. That's the case. Why did God say no for two straight years to my request to let my family sleep through the night during the first two years of my daughter's life? Hmm. She had severe acid reflux. Hmm. Two straight years, we never slept more than a couple hours a night. And that's just a simple, reasonable request. Disappointment with God goes back to when I was 18. 
watching my mom die of an asthma attack, mm. I never prayed harder or more sincerely. And it was no. Why? And the disappointment with myself uh, is threefold. First, it comes from knowing that for so long, I've made myself so busy that there's no more energy or time for my relationship. For a long time, it was, look at all this work I'm doing, Jesus. I don't have time to talk to you, and I'm doing your work. <laughs> Just, despite usually enjoying that work, I'm still sometimes resentful that I have to do it. Mm. Second, add to that from Romans 7. The things I know I should do, I don't. And the things I hate, I do. It's a never-ending cycle of, I'm going to beat this and live the obedient life, quickly followed by, screw you, I do what I want. Quickly followed by, Lord Jesus, I am a fool, and I'm sorry, and repeat. Charting my Christian life is not a nice straight line, continually progressing upward. It looks more like those graphs when an earthquake hits. Periods of calm and then sudden violent swings bouncing between highs and lows. So not only have I been too busy to befriend Jesus, but I've been too rebellious to befriend Jesus. And thirdly, I'm holding Jesus responsible for things that he's not responsible for. Jesus, my Savior, for a long time has been Jesus, my scapegoat. That's not fair. But since my exposure to Mike's take on things, I'm hearing interpretations and background and relevance to things I've heard before on parts of Scripture, but those parts of Scripture are always skipped glossed over, or just treated superficially. I'm finally hearing that the reason for following, the reward for following Jesus, is Jesus. He's my Savior, and yet I've been shunning him. And that's not going to resolve anything. So, I'm in a period of recalibration and re-energizing. I'm re-examining and resetting what I know and what I believe. I need to know this amazing Jesus and be open to the relationship that he wants with me. And I need to check my attitude and give my creator some slack. And I need to forgive the church and continue serving. Not for the sake of serving and its satisfaction, mm. for this, but for the sake of my friendship with Jesus. Come on, dude. Thank you. Oh, oh. Thank you. Oh, does he speak for some of us? Oh, man, yeah. And so this is an interesting tribe that has begun to gather. Uh, Some of us come from, oh, Wynn and Nancy. Okay, these two, Wynn, right there, uh, is the reason I got into uh, youth pastoring out of investment banking uh, in uh, this guy. This guy took a chance on some skinny, full-headed hair guy. Look, and look, look what happened. Oh, that's you guys. Oh, so, um, so we gather today, and some of us come from Christian backgrounds. Some of us don't. Some of us feel awesome about the whole Jesus thing. Some of us don't. Uh, And that's why we just give you a great deal of permission to sit, to stand, to sing, to not sing, to watch, to participate, to be doubtful, to be skeptical, to be angry, to be hurt, to be disappointed. That's all right. God's not shocked. God's not horrified. God's not running away. 
Um, we think it's so important that we're real in a context like this, and we just stop pretending it's all awesome. So we are going to sing. This is our friend Trevor. Trevor helped us uh, back before uh, Izzy was here. Trevor helped us get this thing started, and so we're big fans of skinny guys with hair, just like my brother Wynn was back in the day. So um, hallelujah for that. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll sing a couple of songs. And so God, we're so very grateful that there's room for us. And, uh, and, and even if we're here and we're self-righteous, we're thankful there's room for us. If we're here and we're full of self-condemnation, we're grateful there's room for us. If we're here, we're just in the midst of massive rebellion, we're grateful that there's room for us. For those of us that are here earning your favor, we're grateful there's room for us. For those of us who miss it, we're grateful there's room for us. And so we want to fix our eyes upon how beautiful you are, not how ugly we are or how ugly life is. We want to be reminded that there is hope in the world. There is the possibility of redemption, that all things will be made new. We want to be reminded that evil is a real thing and not to spiritualize it or over-spiritualize it, but to place it in its context in the glorious outworking of the mustard seed kingdom that you inaugurated in Jesus. So we lift our imaginations to you, our words to you, and we ask, Lord, that you would receive us today. In the name of this Jesus, amen. Amen. I mean, speaking of his presence, here I am. Did that ruin the moment? Did that ruin the moment? Okay. Well, I, I have that gift. If you have a Bible, let's go to the book of Matthew. Why don't we do that instead? Hey, let me um, put up John 3.16. So we're going word by word through this verse. And so we've done, For God so loved the world, He gave. His one and only Son was last week. We're going to skip that. I mean, that was tempting, just to do a whole that message. Um, but we're going to focus on whoever. And, and in some ways, that word encapsulates the entire ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. The whoeverness of his message and his kingdom. Jesus was in a conversation. The, the, the framing of John 3.16 is in John chapter 3. And Jesus is in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were zealous. They were devout. Uh, the, the Pharisees had such a zeal for God's law and its uh, ob obedience to it that they took the 613 commands of the Old Testament and they built fences around each of those commands by adding more commands and rules and obligations. And so there were thousands of obligations and commands and regulations the Pharisees adhered to. And, and fundamental to the life of the Pharisee was being separate from all that was unclean. The word even Pharisee even means to be a separate one or a separated one. And so Jesus, what, what, what's the word that would have most surprised Nicodemus as he's having this conversation with Jesus? And I, I wonder if the word whoever isn't the one that would have been interesting to him. Because Jesus, the, the whole thing, the, his whole ministry was about whoever's, the, the, the outcast, the misfits, the marginalized. And, and for some of us, we know this already and we got it. But I want to look at three examples of whoever's, and these are examples we've looked at before, so, so there's nothing new. I just want us to think about the implications if we actually believe this, because here's what I've, I've noticed. The circle of who God loves 
is always much bigger than the circle the church draws. Would you agree with that? And so, so the whoever bit of this whole thing is the, the foundation of our whole community life together. We're looking for the strays. We're looking for the cast-offs. We're looking for the disappointed. We're looking for the marginalized. We're looking for the people that don't quite fit in the nice, polished, shiny, happy versions of American Christianity that a lot of us have seen or had experience with. So we just want to be reminded of our own whoeverness. So Matthew uh, is one of the gospel accounts of Jesus. If you're, if you're new to the Bible, we'll put everything up on the screen. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has just given um, maybe his most famous teaching. It was called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus was on a mountain, not on a horse when he gave this. And um, I think that's funny every time, every time, and nothing. And so, uh, and so, so Jesus, Jesus starts off this whole teaching by announcing the blessedness, the, the availability and the blessedness of, of God's kingdom on all kinds of people that weren't normally associated with being blessed, like the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourning, the peacemaking. Like those people weren't considered the blessed ones, first century Judaism. And so Jesus announces God's blessing upon them. And as soon as this sermon gets done, one of the outcasts and misfits comes zipping up. This guy, notice Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus came down, verse 1, from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him. And if you've ever heard me speak, this is like my favorite story of all time, ever. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me what? Clean. Now, that's different than heal me of the disease. Clean means you're restored into the community. Clean means that you can worship your God again at temple and synagogue. Clean means you don't have to live outside. See, leprosy, and we don't know if it was the, the, the leprosy that we're all familiar with, the disfiguring leprosy, the nerve damage leprosy, or if it was another various skin disease. We're not sure. But you have to understand diseases in the first century were social. So if you had, let's say it was like the leprosy we all know, Hansen's disease, it wasn't just that you had the disease, it's that you were cast out of the town or the city. You, you were untouchable. No one would touch you. It, you could beg at the city gates during the daytime, but when nightfall came, you, you were in a colony with your own kind. The Old Testament commanded that you kept your hair un, unkept. You kept your hair unkept. That you, that you um, tore your clothes and that you announced your uncleanliness whenever you got close to other people. So you would just have to run around shouting, unclean, unclean. So this guy's a real crowd parter when he comes zipping up to Jesus. He's, his desperation is leading him to break a very, very religious taboo. Namely, that he's to stay away from everybody who's clean. He comes rushing up to Jesus, falls down before Jesus, and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, whatever view you have of Jesus, it's not big enough, good enough, or beautiful enough. Because Jesus looks at him and says, I am willing. Jesus reached out his hand, and he what? 
All right, he touched the man. Now, English. Ah, okay, that's cool. Here's Flannelgraph Jesus. You know, touching lepers, isn't that sweet? Holy cow, is this a big deal? First of all, we know that Jesus can heal from long distance, right? I mean, he doesn't have to touch the guy. So touching the guy was on purpose. Secondly, by touching a leper, you become defiled and unclean. And they thought you had the risk of getting the disease yourself, whatever the disease was. And so by touching the man, what Jesus is doing is Jesus isn't just healing him. Jesus is entering into a shame, his, his fear, his isolation. Jesus is identifying with this guy in the, in the strongest way possible by simply touching the man. And it was thought back in the first century that whenever unclean comes into contact with clean so if someone who's unclean comes into contact with somebody who's considered clean, again, these aren't hygiene words, unclean always wins. Unclean defiles clean. Impurity always wins over purity. Except, and this is how Jesus was so different from his contemporaries, except this time. When Jesus touches the man, clean wins. Purity wins. When Jesus touches the guy, the man becomes clean instead of Jesus becoming unclean. Now, you may be going, yeah, yeah, I got it, got it, got it. No, you don't got it. <laughs> you, we don't. We don't got it. Because there isn't any unclean in this room that can't be touched by Jesus of Nazareth and made clean. But, but we all think there are gradations of sin and, and gradations of screw-ups, right? I mean, yes, I'm a sinner, but man, I mean, I'm not like these other people. Or you may be here and you're one of the whoever's, and you're like, man, if anyone knew, there should be lightning right now zapping me. I don't know why there's not. I mean, and you're going, no, no, no. See, I mean, we can hear, oh yeah, here's sweet little Jesus. See, this is an act of defiance. This is an act of subversiveness. This is an act of rebellion against the status quo. This is what the kingdom of God looks like on earth. It comes against anything that keeps human flourishing from happening. And so in the case of this man, it was not just the disease, but it was the isolation. It was the exclusion. It was the mockery. It was the fact that he would never be touched again by another human person unless it was another leper. And here comes the righteous rabbi from Nazareth who touches the man. And when he touches you, his clean wins. End of story. You just have to be humble enough to ask and so the guy parts the crowd, Jesus touches the man, and he's clean. Is that a whoever? That's a whoever. You don't touch lepers in the first century. And we're like, all the good Jesus people are like, yeah, this is sweet Jesus doing what he does. No, no, no. Because who are the untouchables around us? Right? We've all got our untouchables. Not just the movie, which was awesome. Kevin Costner, ladies and gentlemen. People have said we look alike, and I always take that as a compliment. <laughs> Before Kevin Kotzner got, you know, fat and, and bald. Um, <laughs> so, so, I don't know, I'm so sorry. So, so there's the sense in which the touch of Jesus here is revealed as something, yes, it brings healing, but more than that, it brings restoration back in to the community. And so for some of you, you just are so tempted to believe 
that I've, I've blown it too big, I've sinned too much. I'm in the middle of something now that is a total catastrophe. And I just want to point out again, your worthiness has nothing to do with this. It's how magnificent Jesus turns out to be. Now, in Jewish culture, the only person ranked lower than a leper was a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, all right? So as soon as the leper leaves, here comes somebody worse. Verse 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, who's a centurion? What is a centurion? (laughs) Roman soldier. So he's a Gentile, it's not Jewish. He's a Roman, he's a soldier, and he's a captain of soldiers. That's four strikes. Non-Jewish, Roman, soldier, commander. I mean, right there. Now, you have to understand, the Jews considered the Romans terrorists. It'd be like if ISIS invaded America. The Romans would crucify Jews all over the place, put down rebellions in the most gruesome way possible, enforce taxation that kept most of the nation in poverty unless you capitulated and compromised. So here comes a man, non-Jewish, Roman, soldier, commander. He scores lower than the leper on the desirable list. He asks Jesus for help, which is, centurions don't ask for help, they command. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. And then Jesus, (laughs) I wish I could convey how ridiculous this is. It just seems like, okay, here's cute Jesus doing it again. Jesus said, shall I come and heal him? Now, oh, the number one rule is you never go into the house of somebody who's not Jewish. And so Jesus is like, well, do you need me to come over? (laughs) Right, you want me to take care of this? Now that raises Wade's very good question. Well, how come he doesn't do that with my, you know, my, for two years with acid reflux? I mean, he's got leprosy, why not? That's a whole different teaching. But the way Jesus is presented here is somebody who's like, okay, whatever social taboo there is, I'm willing to break it to make a point. Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replies, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. In other words, he knows the significance of Jesus' offer. And he's worried for Jesus' sake. But he says this, just say the word and my servant will be healed. You can heal long distance. And here's why he says this. I am a man under authority and I know how authority works. I have soldiers under me, and I tell this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hey, Jesus, I know you have authority because I recognize it when I see it. Jesus, he heard this. He was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now, imagine you're one of his Jewish followers. Really, Jesus? Really? A Roman, a Gentile, a soldier, and a commander. Really? Yeah, I know how authority works, man. Jesus could just say the word and it's done like miles away. It's done. Done. Does he qualify as a whoever? Now, the only person lower 
than a Roman, Gentile, soldier, centurion, the only person lower on the Jewish despised scale are the Jews that helped the Romans plunder the country. Go to Luke 19. We're going to look at a wee little man. We've looked at this story, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. I don't care. We're going to do it again. If you're new to the Bible, this is all new to you. And that's who I'm talking to. These other folks, oh yeah, I know this story. No, you don't. You don't know this story. If you knew this story, your life would be so magnetic. You'd be trucking non-Christians around with you everywhere you went. Luke 19. Oh, here's Jesus doing the flannel graph thing. Now notice, Jesus entered Jericho. Jericho, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Jericho is where a lot of the rich Jews lived who were part of the temple complex in Jerusalem. Okay? Jesus is going through Jericho. And notice, it says, and was passing through. Now, that means he was refusing all offers of hospitality by the city leaders, uh, by his followers who were in the city. He was just, nope, 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 got to move, got to move, got got, to go to Jerusalem, got to get to Jerusalem. So he's saying no to all hospitality. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a what? Yes. Now, my English Bible has chief tax collector. Now, this is how tax collecting works. We've talked about this, but just as a reminder. Rome, let's let's use round numbers because I'm not great at math. Rome said, all right, you're paying by the time you do tribute and by the time you do taxes, let's say you're paying 30%. Tax rate, okay, on everything. So you bring 100 fish to the shore, 30 of those are going to Rome. You have 100 bushels of whatever, 30 of those are going to Rome, off the top. What chief tax collectors did is they bid against each other for the privilege of collecting those taxes. And then they hired a bunch of people under them. It's like multi-level marketing, to collect the specific taxes along every road, along every part of the lake, along every field, every farm. So Matthew, one of Jesus' followers, was one of these low-level folks. He was a toll collector, which means he sat at the entrance of one district into another and collected a toll for the privilege of moving goods. The thing with Rome was that the way they got Jews to betray Jews is that if you collected 30, if you had to give Rome 30%, you could tax 35%. And no one could vote you out of office because you got to keep the 5% and the Roman military backed you up. So to be a tax collector was to be corrupt. They were the lowest of the despised classes of people. In fact, it was taught that if a tax collector entered your house, everything was unclean. You had to throw all your food away, burn your clothes. You had to wash all the implements. I mean, it, so, the, so tax collectors, imagine. Imagine you're in World War II. You're in um, Nazi-occupied France, and you're Jewish. The Nazis are rounding up your friends and family members who are Jewish and taking them to camps. Who are the people that you hate most, even beyond the Nazis? 
any of your fellow Jews that were helping them cooperate, right? This was the disgust that the Jews felt towards the tax collectors. They, they were aiding the terrorists in our country. They not only sold out God, they sold out their national birthright, they sold out Torah. I mean, they were the most unclean. And Jesus, of course, gets a reputation as a friend of sinners and tax collectors for events just like this. So Zacchaeus is scum. He is lower than the leper. He's lower than the centurion. You don't, I mean, imagine Jesus eating at the house of Osama bin Laden. Imagine Jesus passing through Syria and he goes to the head of ISIS. Hey, I have to eat at your house. Right? He's walking around Nazi Germany and he says to Hitler, Hitler, I'd love to share a meal with you. I mean, this, this is what this would feel like. You just say, no, no, these things don't go together. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, no duh. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Now what's interesting is the he is ambiguous in Greek. So we don't know if it was because Jesus was short or whether Zacchaeus was short. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus, Jesus isn't Swedish and six feet with blonde hair. The BBC had a, a documentary on Jesus, I don't know, 20 years ago, and they, and, and, they, and they used a short, pudgy Mediterranean actor, and people, people had a fit. Why? Well, because we all want to make Jesus just like us. I think Jesus was pudgy. I, I don't know why. I just have that sense. <laughs> now, maybe it was Zacchaeus who was short. So Zacchaeus ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree, which is totally symbolic, to see Jesus, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to them, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I, I must what? Stay at your house. He said no to every other offer of hospitality until he comes across the most despised, notorious sinner of his day. And then, before the sinner repents, before the sinner does anything religiously good, Jesus extends the offer of table fellowship. The offer of table fellowship was Jesus saying, I'm willing to share in the status of your sin in order to eat with you. To share a meal with somebody in that culture was to say, I identify with you. I share your status with you. It's spiritual kinship. Come on. Before Zacchaeus did anything. Oh. So he came down. At once and welcomed him gladly, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Oh, Jesus, Zacchaeus, excuse me, stood up and said to Lord Jesus, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, no duh, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. And the word salvation here is a playoff of Jesus' name. Jesus' name, Yahshua, means the Lord saves. And the word here is a form of Yahshua. It's just genius. It's like salvation has come in the form of me to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, a reference to himself, came to seek and save the what? Come on! This, I mean, again, I, I hate sharing these stories because I know you, some of you have heard me teach on them already. You know them. Some of you do. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got it. Whoever. Yeah, he loves everybody. 
But if we got it, then why isn't this what the church is known for? Right? This is the, this is the unmistakable, defining characteristic of the Jesus movement. Indiscriminate love and sacrifice. Period. Anybody can love those who love them. Only Jesus people are to love their enemies. Anybody can lend to those who expect repayment. Jesus people are to lend without expectation. Anybody can hold a grudge. Jesus people forgive. Anybody can be ugly. Jesus people are expected to be beautiful. I don't mean physically. I mean in their way of kindness and compassion to the world. Men and women, if there's one word that defines the community we want to be, it's the word whoever. First of all, because we're all one, right? The minute you think you deserve a place at this table, you're most in danger of not having one. And so part of this is just a reminder, none of us, there's no worth that sits in this room. There's nothing. It's all about how magnificent he is. But if that's true, then who are we to determine who else is worthy? Ah, this is where it just fries my brains. Why, if it's so obvious, is it so hard to implement? Why, if this is the distinguishing mark of the kingdom, why is it so hard to put on display? Because it goes against the very nature of what our hearts are like, correct? Our hearts love to play the worthy game. Our hearts love to play the blame, condemnation, scapegoat game. Absolutely, of course. But here comes Jesus of Nazareth. And in a culture where clean and unclean, worth and non-worth, pure and impure, all of those things were so scrupulously defined. What's Jesus do? Well, the whole thing's about whoever's. Who does Jesus appear to when he's born? Rulers? Nope. Shepherds? And by the way, shepherds were one of the despised classes of people in Jewish society. They were always around dung. So, not that you, I'm sure you could imagine that. Now, what's, and, and, who, and, and then when Jesus is glorified at his crucifixion, who, who's he next to? Next to bandits. And the whole thing, I mean, it's just, oh yes, here's demon-possessed people. Here's a Samaritan woman with five husbands, right? Here's Peter who's going to deny him three times, right? Here's Judas that will, is in his inner circle that will betray him. I mean, the whole thing is a bunch of whoever's. The whole thing is to find the most marginalized, crazy people and to invite them to the table. That's the movement of Jesus. And the proud, he loves the proud. And the religious, he loves the religious, But so often their religion and their pride gets in the way of seeing how beautiful he turns out to be because they're buying into the worthy and non-worthy thing. Whereas Jesus comes along and says, worth has nothing to do with it. God scandalously loves everybody before you get your act together, before you get right, before you get it figured out, In 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 the midst of your mess and the slop of life. It's there that he touches. And it's there that he says, all right, I'll heal long distance. And it's there that he says, hey, I'd love to share a table with you. And imagine if, how many people are in here? Look around. I'm going to guess, what, 150? And, and pretty good looking people. Right? I mean, fairly. I'd put us on an 8 out of 10. You know? 
I drag us down a little bit. I mean, but Steve over here is raising us up. Imagine if a crew of 150 people just decided that they were going to love other people in this way. Right? I mean, the, the reason we love all these empty seats is because we're expecting God to fill them using you. Because we just think this is what the church does. This is who the church is. There isn't a place for a lot of the marginalized folks in our culture to come as they are. And so we feel like this is what we do. This is the word that describes Vox. It's a bunch of whoever's. And the most dangerous thing, the most, the, the most dangerous thing that could get in the way and quench the work of God here is just the self-righteous judgment that comes from declaring ahead of time who's worthy and who's not. We just forsake all judgments ahead of time. So the way we say it, it's grace before truth. Jesus was a man full of grace and truth. Our culture needs grace before truth. And what we mean by that is that we lead with love with no agenda. Because we want to make Jesus beautiful. Not that Jesus needs our help to be beautiful. He is already. But so much has been attached to him that's ugly. And so I believe the world desperately needs people who go around simply announcing, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever, 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 the religiously ridiculous, the religiously elite, the self-righteous, the non-righteous, whoever. And the way that we manifest this is at the table. So we celebrate the Eucharist every week. And we celebrate it a bit scandalously because we don't check spiritual IDs at the, at, at the table. Like, you're all welcome. Because if, if we can't say, if you're here and you're a drug addict, if you're here and you're into... Uh, are there kids in the room? Probably. If you're into the most ridiculous and horrific stuff, there, there, there's got to be places for those people. There have to be places for those people. And so what we do is we, we take the Lord's Supper because that's the great leveler. Worthy has nothing to do with it. We're all unworthy. Let's just get that out of the way, correct? All of us. All of us have darkness. All of us have sin. All of us have fallen short. Some of us are more spiritually along than others. Irrelevant. All who call upon the name of this Jesus will be rescued. And one of the ways that we call as we take the bread and we take the cup. And we're going to do that a little differently today. What we're going to do is Trevor's going to come up. We're going to sing. But we're going to have folks holding the bread and the cup next to each of our stations, gluten-free. That's the paleo version, too. We're going to say that's the paleo table over there. And uh, we're actually going to have people look you in the eye and usually what we do is you come and you take the bread and you dip it into the cup and you eat. Uh, this time what we want to do is we want to have people look you in the eye and say, this is the body broken for you. And this is the blood shed for you. To have someone say those words over you. See, the reason we do this every week is because we forget that it's actually real and true. So we're going to do that. We also, um, if you want to participate in giving, you can do that in the participation boxes. That's well, you're sitting next to some of the most generous people in the history of Orange County who have carried this community. It's amazing. If you want to participate in that, that's where you do that. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to sing, and all standard singing disclaimers apply. Stand, sit, irrelevant. All right?
So the clock's telling me I'm five minutes over, so I'm going to pray. The clock. Lord, we rebuke the clock in the name of Jesus. The tyranny of the clock! I am so grateful that you still touch unclean people. And I'm so grateful that you still recognize and respond to faith. And I'm so grateful that religious pedigrees aren't something you're looking for. And I'm so grateful that you don't, you don't see the labels that human beings use on each other. You just see hearts. And I'm so grateful that there's room at the table for me. I'm so grateful. You know the darkness in me. And I'm, I'm just profoundly thankful that I get to come and to take and to eat again and again and again. And for those of us who are just feeling so far away, would you give them the faith and the courage to come and to take and to eat, to believe the good news is not only good news, but it's for them. And so, God, we offer you this time. We pray that you would meet us at the table as we respond now in faith. Amen and amen. I'm getting there. Hey, I thought you were supposed to be outside. That's why I'm up here. <laughs> My name is Andy. I am the uh, creative director here at uh, Vox. I'm also on um, Mike's show. Let's make that clear. Um, <laughs> oh, and all of my attempts to usurp. Um, yeah, you guys, thank you guys for coming again today. Um, Voxoc.com, you can find all of our information there. Um, if a friend brought you here and you're checking this out as part of our friends and family service, um, we want to know what you think. So if you can go online and send us an email at feedback at Voxoc um, and tell us if you think this is absolutely uh, catastrophic, disaster, wrong. Uh, we'd like to know. Um, see, someone got that. And um, there you go. And if you guys want to come back um, later, which you most likely won't, but um, after the 11 o'clock service, we are going to be doing a shaved ice show show. So I know Trevor will be there sucking down all that sugar water. It's good stuff. So, all right. Thanks, guys. Let me go ahead and send you off with a quick blessing. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice and aim for restoration and comfort one another. Agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.